Welcome to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. I'm Jeannie Hareska, Senior Advisor for Communications and Strategy at ACS. Before I introduce our guest, I want to re-up our request to all listeners. We are preparing our upcoming episode on the Supreme Court's new term and want to help answer your questions about it. If you have questions about our highest court or about upcoming cases in the new term, email us at podcast at acslaw.org. We'll try to answer as many questions as we can on our SCOTUS preview episode. And again, our email is podcast at acslaw.org. Now for today's episode... Listeners probably recall that earlier this year, the most expensive judicial race in our country's history, with roughly $50 million spent in total, saw Janet Protasiewicz win election to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. She was sworn in last month, has not heard a single case, and already she is facing increasing threats of impeachment because of what her election could mean for the direction of the court. To discuss the impact of this one seat on this one state Supreme Court, I'm joined by Craig Mastantuno, partner at Mastantuno Coffee and Thomas, adjunct faculty at Marquette University Law School, member of the Wisconsin Governor's Judicial Selections Committee, and most importantly, chair of the ACS Wisconsin Lawyer Chapter. We'll also be discussing the Wisconsin Governor's Judicial Selection Committee, which is a critical way that lawyers can have an impact on their state judiciaries. Craig, welcome to Broken Law. Hi, Jeannie. It's nice to join you. It is wonderful to have you. You are a star in the ACS network. Uh, And we're going to talk about a pretty hefty Supreme Court seat. And so before we actually talk about what's going on now, I want to go back to the election. Uh, ACS did a lot of mobilization around the election, trying to get voters to pay attention Um, And for folks all across the country to understand the gravity of this election, but for folks who didn't follow it in real time, what was so monumental about this election? Well, I mean, on its face, the balance of the court between a liberal and conservative uh, majority. So we have a seven member Wisconsin state Supreme Court that at the time of the election had a four to three conservative majority. And so the balance uh, ideologically of the court was in play in the election. There was an open seat. Uh, Former Supreme Court Chief Justice Patience Rogensack announced her retirement at the end of her term. It was in April of this year election to have her replacement elected by the voters of Wisconsin. Here in Wisconsin, Supreme Court justices serve 10-year terms. And so it was an open election, and each uh, side, if you will, ideologically had a candidate. Uh, Former Supreme Court Justice Dan Kelly was the conservative candidate. He had previously been voted off the court and beaten by Justice Jill Karofsky, and so he was running to gain his seat back. And on the progressive side, uh, Milwaukee trial judge Janet Protasiewicz uh, came out of the uh, primary process as the progressive candidate, if you will. And so the balance of the court was in play. And, you know, that was against the backdrop of Wisconsin being a battleground state in each of the last really three or four presidential elections. Also, at the, on the, at the same time, uh, having very, very uh, 50-50 kind of splits electorally um, on some of these very important um, uh, elections, including the presidential election in 2016, the presidential election in 2020, 
Um, our Supreme Court races have been hotly contested. And so I think that drew the eyes of the nation, if you will, to uh, people that pay attention to politics on Wisconsin at the same time that there was a rising interest in the importance of state Supreme Courts, and both as the basis for litigation based on state constitutions, and then with um, everything that has gone on electorally in the United States, such as challenges to presidential election results, I think people really started paying attention. We have a highly polarized state, and Wisconsin really, really caught the attention of the nation and um, received a lot of money uh, from both in-state and out-state on both sides of uh, uh, the election. Was this a nonpartisan election? Nonpartisan election. All judicial races in Wisconsin are nonpartisan um, in theory and actually. However, current election laws, both uh, state election law and federally, don't prohibit um, uh, outside money groups from contributing directly to campaigns. And so uh, it was no secret that Justice former Justice Kelly was uh, supported by the Republican Party of Wisconsin, and Judge Protasiewicz was supported by the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. The reason I bring that up is the election was headlined as a really crucial election for abortion rights. And you mentioned it, right? Like state Supreme Courts are gaining focus amongst political parties as the Supreme Court sends more issues to the states, which ultimately means to state Supreme Courts. And so anytime you have an election that could decide the control of the court, it's going to be a partisan issue. And here we have a situation where abortion rights was talked about as being on the ballot, right? This is not a presidential race. It's not a senatorial race. This is a judicial race where abortion rights were on the ballot. Why was that such a storyline. Yeah, I, post Dobbs, right? Um, uh, I think advocates and the public generally are looking to next steps in this, you know, in this ongoing uh, issue since prior to Roe versus Wade, through Roe versus Wade, Casey, and other um, decisions, and then culminating with Dobbs and. You know, I, I think that the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court justices, in my opinion, somewhat naively thought, well, this is over now from a from a, a judicial standpoint, and states will decide these issues. Well, states have state constitutions, and states have jurisprudence that largely had, you know, really been ignored as litigation related to women's reproductive rights because of the existence of the, the, the federal guarantees created by Roe versus Wade. And so people started paying attention to state Supreme Courts all of a sudden. And so in this election in Wisconsin, really, you had two things that were openly talked about in a way that was different than prior elections. One was women's reproductive rights. Abortion rights were on the ballot, as you said, and people campaigned that way, particularly Judge Protasiewicz, who uh, openly stated that she was pro-choice. Um, Justice, former Justice Kelly had a record of being pro-life. And that was on the ballot. The other, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, was uh, legislative maps uh, and, and voting rights. And that was openly discussed as well. I, I, I would say, you know, Judge Protasiewicz won the April election by 11 points in Wisconsin, which compared with other state Supreme Court races, very recent ones, all of the recent ones, and compared with the presidential uh, national elections that we've had at the state level in Wisconsin and Senate races, 11 points is a huge gap. And so many people in Wisconsin are in the aftermath of April 2023 
saying that, and I think accurately saying that, look, women's reproductive rights and fair legislative maps played a real difference and made a real difference in this election outcome. Sure. And I want to talk about those two cases because there is a case currently on both of those issues, one on abortion rights, one on the gerrymandered maps that are destined for the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And that was known at election time. But look, just looking back on the history of the court, like you said, nonpartisan elections. And so the justices don't have official party affiliation, but the court is now viewed as having a liberal majority for the first time in 15 years. Talk to me about the legacy of those last 15 years. What were some of the defining cases where you know, a sw- one seat difference could have made a difference. Sure. Well, let's go back to the 2020 election outcome, presidential election outcome. Former President Trump challenged the election results in Wisconsin, which uh, the the uh, electoral votes of Wisconsin went to election winner President Joe Biden uh, by 30,000 votes. Uh, approximately in Wisconsin. I think 1.8 million uh, were cast or or somewhere thereabouts. I could be off on that larger number, but it was a 50-50 outcome, right? 30,000 votes made the difference. Uh, Former President Trump challenged the election outcome here in Wisconsin. That was decided before the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. Uh, There at the time of that challenge was the four to three conservative majority uh, and the election results stood, were, were affirmed by the Wisconsin Supreme Court because one conservative justice, Justice Paul Hagedorn, sided with the three justice liberals at the time for a four to three decision. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's lost on many politically active, politically attentive, and even general public members in Wisconsin that... Um, the Wisconsin vote uh, survived by uh, the Wisconsin voters result survived by one judge's swing vote on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So if you want to go back in terms of legacy, that that was for progressives, I think, far too close for comfort and not something that could be relied upon moving forward. And for uh, conservatives, I think very, very frustrating because they were upset with the outcome that one of their own, so to speak, on the conservative side, sided with the the progressive uh, side and upheld the Wisconsin state election results. And it's almost hard to imagine that we're going to go through the 2024 election cycle without some sort of election litigation ending up before this state Supreme Court. All elections are becoming increasingly litigious affairs, especially in swing states. They are. And I, I think what's sometimes lost on people is, okay, I just gave you an example of the big the big challenge, right? The presidential election outcome challenge. After the election happens, <laughs> After right? After the election happens. When you're happens. debating the results. So you yeah, see yeah. what I'm getting at, Jeannie, which is that I mean, leading up to elections, there are many fights that come before state courts all over the United States. and That do impact the results. We just hugely don't think Hugely, exactly. So how are elections administered? There are challenges involving voting roles, involving voting procedures, involving access to the vote, involving interpretation of administrative and legislative rules affecting voting that affect real things like what kind of IDs can college students use in a voter ID state, et cetera, that can, that can swing 10,000 votes at a time. Especially post-COVID, right, where you have all of these mail-in ballot questions and all these new laws pertaining to mail-in ballots. The courts are absolutely 
impacting the outcome of our elections. Correct. And a lot of those challenges go to state Supreme Courts, and Wisconsin is no different. And in a state that has election outcomes presidentially that are decided by 30,000 votes, these can have a huge impact, these decisions. So all of that was in balance. You asked me to talk about kind of the legacy of the the, the past and the prior Supreme Court um, conservative majority. Really, I was licensed in 1992. So I'm going on my 32nd year as a practicing lawyer based out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but practicing kind of statewide. And I would say this, I, I hate to challenge the premise of the um, kind of local media and national media, but we really haven't had a, a progressive majority that is reliably progressive in terms of four justices on the Supreme Court in my legal career. Everybody uses that 15-year figure because uh, during a period of time, Justice Lewis Butler was appointed first African-American justice by then-Governor Jim Doyle in Wisconsin and had a four-year period of time when he was challenged at the end of a 10-year term. He was appointed to replace a conservative justice. And that really resulted in, in my opinion, a four to three conservative majority. It had been five to two. And during Justice Butler's term from, uh, in, which ended, I believe in uh, uh, 2008, he was able during that period of time to swing then Justice Patrick Crooks, who was part of the conservative majority onto the progressive side for some major decisions that involved lead paint and, and tort litigation, some criminal defense issues, that became so a Justice Kennedy of sorts, kind of, and so it took a, a previously solidly conservative court and made it progressive or liberal in a few ways in a few big decisions, which is why he became Justice Butler. That is the target of a big money campaign to replace him, which ultimately worked. But really, in terms of a solid liberal majority, I, I would argue that that goes back at least thirty years that we haven't had one, and so this is a sea change. In Wisconsin moving forward, which is why, you know, if I can pivot to from past to future, which is why I think that um, uh, conservative elements in the in the Wisconsin legislature, we have a Republican controlled legislature, a conservative legislature, and a Democratic governor in Wisconsin, which is why I think that the conservatives are really coming at Justice Protasiewicz hard with threats of impeachment right out of the chute. Yeah, so let's talk about that because the threat of impeachment came up before the election. I remember in the weeks leading up to the election, there there were threats that should she get elected, the legislature should immediately consider impeaching her, which is quite the statement to make. Um, and I feel like those statements have only increased in the last few weeks. And though I'm sitting in DC, so I'm not up, you know in the midst of this, but from the press that I've read, their allegation is if she doesn't recuse herself from the two cases we've talked about, right, from the abortion rights case and the electoral maps case, that that would be grounds for impeachment. Right. So let me explain the backdrop a little bit and and try to be as um, kind of fair as possible to both sides. One could make a reasonable argument that the last Supreme Court uh, race between former Justice Kelly and then Judge Protasiewicz, involved a lot more, particularly on Judge Protasiewicz's part, kind of openly stating positions on issues that could potentially be be before the court. Judge Protasiewicz was stating that she was pro-choice. 
She was stating that, and this is the comment that drew the ire of conservatives, that Wisconsin's electoral maps were, quote, rigged. And uh, while also stating that she, Judge Protasiewicz, would promise to hear each case individually and decide on the merits. But that definitely drew the ire of conservatives. Now, it also was remarkable to a lot of legal observers saying, wow, this is different because previously you really had elections where you often, in fact, all the elections that I can recall in my legal career on the state Supreme Court involved ultimately after the primary process, a, a conservative and a progressive. But you didn't really, you talked maybe about ideology being conservative or progressive, but you didn't directly address issues. Candidates didn't directly address issues. And, you know, it, it was often kind of a, in, you know, as, a, as an attorney who lives on a street that has neighbors, right? And as somebody that is in the workplace, my wife, who's also an attorney, and I would often be asked, by people, gosh, which one's the which one is which, you know, or where do they stand on the issues? Because it was really this cat and mouse game to describe yourself as the most qualified because you know you were a former prosecutor or because you were a, a, a sitting judge for fifteen years, and you know the candidates really hid the ball a little bit on where they stood on the issues. This election was a little different, and Judge Protasiewicz said, "Look, I'm I'm telling you my values." Uh, I, I'm openly stating what my values are. They matter. They matter to the public. The public deserves to know where we sit on in terms of our values and not just our qualifications or so-called kind of judicial uh, philosophy. And so I'm going to openly state that while saying that I'll hear each case fairly and individually. You know, if you really take a step back from that and think about it, I think most members of the public, or I think many members of the public, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush here, probably would say, well, I kind of appreciate the candor. I want to know where you stand on really important issues. Especially in the wake of Dobbs, where you know this case is coming. This is the number one issue that is driving electoral headlines, right? Like we've seen it in several states, if abortion is on the ballot, you are going to get hounded with questions about your position on it if you don't just own up and say it. Right. And so I, I think the public voted on that. As I said earlier, yeah. 11 points was huge in Wisconsin in terms of a electoral victory. Well, that's what's being attacked now by the proponents of impeachment. And that's largely Robin Voss, the assembly speaker in Wisconsin, who is uh, predicting that unless Justice Protasiewicz recuses herself from these cases where she openly stated her values, that would be grounds for impeachment, which would be, you know, an assembly sponsored impeachment and then sent to the Senate, state Senate to act. And Republican controlled with enough b votes to do both. In fact, you need 22 votes in the Senate in Wisconsin to confirm an impeachment or to move forward on an impeachment and, and, and oust a public official. And that's exactly the number of senators uh, that the Republican Party holds in the Senate. So they would need to hold a complete majority, but they have the votes. And today there was further developments. The state Democratic Party, which supported Justice Protasiewicz, both you know in terms of endorsement, but also in terms of real resources and money, announced a multi-million dollar effort to defend her against impeachment in the political realm. I just want to take a moment to discuss how surreal and alarming this is because this is happening in several states where 
a party that has a supermajority control over a legislature isn't quitting when they lose an election. No. Right? They're not going, okay, the voters have spoken, they've chosen the other person. They're bringing up the concept of impeachment more and more. We're seeing it in Georgia with Fonnie Willis and the district attorney that there's a threat to remove her from office, right? In Florida, we've seen several elected officials removed from office. This, I mean, you know, we're still in the midst of 2020 and the effort to overturn the presidential election, but impeachment is another way of overturning an election when you politically impeach somebody for reasons that are not historically considered grounds for impeachment, right? According to Wisconsin, you can impeach someone for corrupt conduct in office or for the commission of a crime or misdemeanor. That is not present here. This ain't that. I I, I agree. Um, yesterday, Judge uh, Justice Protasewicz released the opinion of the Wisconsin State Judicial Commission, which is an appointed commission that makes inquiries on complaints into judicial misconduct. Which earlier this year, Judge Protasewicz, then Judge Protasewicz, had already been complained about as a judicial officer on the campaign trail, stating her values. Judicial Commission found no violations, and just just now Justice Protasewicz released that letter, which is typically sent confidentially to the person that's the subject of the inquiry. And I, say, I state that just to say, to demonstrate your point, this is not corruption or a crime, you know, uh, of any type. Um, this is an argument, this is a legal argument, essentially for recusal in the political realm, where the proponents of impeachment are saying, if you don't recuse yourself, we're going to impeach you. Now, there's an interesting, if I may, two two things about history in Wisconsin about that. First of all, I agree with you. Um, it, it, it used to be, so to speak, that elections mattered, right? And they, they mattered with finality, that there wasn't an effort to undercut electoral results through things like impeachment or governors removing district attorneys, et cetera. And that is that does appear to be a, a, a relatively new phenomenon, but it's it has already started. So, example, it started before this. I mean, when Governor Evers um, was elected in Wisconsin after eight years of conservative Governor Scott Walker, uh, in the lame duck session from November of 2018 to 2019, when his term began, the Republican-controlled legislature enacted new legislation to remove many of the governor's powers. Uh, you know, of his ability to to do certain th- things that really mattered in terms of budget in Wisconsin and legal authority. And it became a real uh, subject of a, a lot of attention publicly. And they moved forward despite a lot of public opposition to say, yeah, because we lost the election, we can't trust a Democratic governor to do the, you know, to, you know, exercise gubernatorial authority, we're going to take away some of his powers. And, 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 you know, that was unprecedented. So you're starting to see that kind of chipping away at um, uh, democratic processes through things like that. Uh, the second thing I would say is, you know, I, I think if, if you're in the Democratic Party strategic room right now, you're thinking, wow, this could be a political winner if, you know, even if we have to go down this terrible road, because of an 11 point victory of this justice. You know, I mean, the Republican Party is going to have to move forward with impeachment, trying to make the case that the will of the voters in a very, very lopsided election result should be overturned by removal of this justice. So that could be a political mistake, kind of the way they're talking about, you know, Speaker McCarthy and the, in the, in Congress and the Republicans moving forward with impeachment on President Biden being a real um, political loser ultimately. But. 
if I'm a predicting person, I'm, I'm going to say they're going to move forward anyway. That's again, you know, we're not Vegas. We're not here to name odds, but that seems to be the direction they're going, it does. Uh, which is alarming. Like this is, as we've talked about, it's a national trend and it is one of the contributing factors to folks concern that our democracy is slipping when elections no longer have the lasting impact, when election is just a temporary blip, right? Because you have this threat of impeachment looming. It's, it's really troubling. That's really something, right? I have a high school senior daughter at home and, uh, I'm watching the cynicism form in her political brain as she's going through civics classes and some pretty advanced work in high school. And it's, it's, it's depressing to see a young person think, wow, a lot of this stuff doesn't matter because there's always another round of either litigation or impeachment or something that makes finality of elections not matter as much as it appears to for my generation, your generation. It, it, it's depressing. I will say, I really appreciate the point you make, though, that the 11-point victory is, uh, that is a huge victory in a swing state. And so I'm thinking of your daughter, where I, I get the cynicism of, like, why vote if, even if my vote contributes to a win, it's not going to matter. Right. Right. I think the comeback to that is, no, your vote does matter, because that 11-point victory could end up being the deciding factor going forward. It matters. Absolutely. Well, I would say this, uh, my, just keeping on the my daughter yeah, uh, yeah. reference, post-Dobbs, yeah, post uh, I don't think anything can keep her from the ballot box when she gets access to it at 18, knowing, knowing who she is. I mean, that, that is a real motivator among young people. And I see her and her friends as the example of that. Um, there's going to be a big problems coming down the line uh, electorally for opponents of, of women's reproductive rights. And I just, we've touched upon the legislative map case, but I just want to note the other consideration in this partisan mess is that the Republican controlled legislature would likely lose control if the Supreme Court deemed the maps gerrymandered, required them to be redrawn. The concern from a Republican standpoint is that they would lose control with fair drawn maps. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. Is that I mean, it, it's pretty nakedly political here in Wisconsin. I don't think the Republicans really have a pr principled leg to stand on in terms of stating Other that than these... we want power, we have it and we <laughs> want to keep it. It's all about power. I mean, so yeah. just a quick number example, in the last, you know, I think it was the April election, there were legislative elections as well. The, the general public voted 55-45 in favor of Democratic candidates. But there's a 65% to 70% majority in both legislative um, houses uh, of the Wisconsin legislature. So, it, you know, the, the, the results are largely lopsided compared with, you know, popular vote in Wisconsin. And that's as a result of the cracking and packing that went on with legislative districts to split up Democratic concentrations or pack them into, you know, combine them into a smaller number of districts. And can I just geek out uh, in terms of uh, yeah, the please. law on a second on redistricting? Because I just want to give you the argument that's made um, in support of what um, Justice, Justice, now Justice Protasewicz said on the um, campaign trail. The legislative maps um, uh, were challenged in Wisconsin in what became the 2018 case Gill versus Whitford in the United States Supreme Court. There was a three federal judge panel that tried that case at, uh, it, it, at the trial court level involving one, um, 
Western District of Wisconsin judge, one Eastern District of Wisconsin judge, and one member of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals that heard evidence and sided with the plaintiffs that challenged the fairness of the max, maps from political standpoint, political, politically unfair. That was challenged directly to the United States Supreme Court, which sent the case back on a standing issue. After that, it it, it, it petered out procedurally, and Rousseau uh, versus Common Cause was subsequently decided in that political challenges to fair maps is not a justiciable issue. Yeah. It's left <laughs> the electoral branches to Correct. figure out. Correct. That word always gives me pause. Um, but people who would defend what Judge Protasewicz said on the campaign trail was, look, the maps were found to be unfair. There was a standing issue in front of the United States Supreme Court. So the what it is part of this is done and decided, uh, you know, by a fair She's panel. She's stating an already decided judicial conclusion. She's stating a fact. And the what to do about it part is what is going to be procedurally before the Wisconsin Supreme Court in any subsequent challenge. And so, you know, I, I think it's an interesting argument combined with the fact that she said, look, I'll hear every case fairly. I want to hear the evidence in that case, but this is my inclination and these are my values. So it would be um, incredible to see a judge or Supreme Court justice actually impeached from a principled standpoint on on that backdrop and that record. Yeah. And I, again, just underscoring that this is the reality we live in now, where this threat of impeachment is coming up more and more and being delivered on um, in multiple states. And so for listeners, it's just more reason to be engaged in the process and to have a voice in the process. You're listening to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society. If you're enjoying Broken Law, consider becoming a member of ACS today. You do not need to be a lawyer to be a member. As we discuss so often on this podcast, our laws and legal systems impact all of us. By supporting ACS, you support Broken Law, our work to diversify the federal bench, and our advocacy for Supreme Court reform. You also become a member of our nationwide network. Learn more about ACS by visiting our website at acslaw.org. And now, back to the conversation. I don't want listeners to become cynical, which I'm already cynical. And I feel for your daughter because I think it's so, so easy to throw your hands in the air. But we need folks to stay engaged. And so I'm actually really glad that we're going to be talking about this next topic, which is the Judicial Selection Committee. Because we just talked about the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which... State Supreme Courts are absolutely on the front lines of these issues, but so are lower state courts. So draw me an org chart real quick. What is the Wisconsin judiciary makeup? Sure. So uh, for your listeners that don't live in and around the Midwest, so Wisconsin is a state of about 6 million people. There's two large metropolitan centers, Milwaukee and Madison, the capital. There's also a large population center in Green Bay where there's a football team that some people may have heard of. I'm from Chicago, so I don't say that name (laughs) um, uh, for the record. Um, And so in Wisconsin, which is 72 counties, we have 253, I believe is the number, state circuit court judges that administer the circuit courts of the 72 counties. There are 16 court of appeals judges And then there are seven Supreme Court justices. And these are nonpartisan offices, and they are um, elected officials. So at the county level, you know, Milwaukee County, Dane County, where Madison lies, all the other counties elect their judges in spring elections in April. 
and they are six-year terms, and then the uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court is a 10-year term. Wisconsin's governor, whoever is in the governor's office at the time, has the authority to fill vacancies created by either resignation or death uh, of a judge during their term. And then that appointed judge would have to stand in the next spring election once the governor appoints. And this comes up more frequently, I think, than people realize, because not everybody plans their retirement or resignation in six-year blocks, if you think about it in the ordinary affairs of life. A lot of people leave after service of two years into a new term. And many of these judges have been judges for 20 or 30 years or 15 years, and they've had their run. Some of them are progressive, and if there's a Democratic governor, they feel safe resigning their seat when the Democratic governor can appoint his or her successor. Same thing on the Republican side with conservative judges. So um, Governor Evers, uh, every governor, uh, the, the Constitution grants gubernatorial authority very broadly, just each governor can set up his or her own process for appointing judges. Uh, the current governor in Wisconsin, Governor Tony Evers, has appointed a 15-member Judicial Selection Advisory Committee comprised of 15 lawyers from around the state. And uh, this committee accepts applications, interviews applicants for any vacancy, and then makes recommendations to uh, the governor, who largely follows, this governor largely follows the um, recommendation of the committee. And I have the privilege of serving on that committee for Governor Evers and have since he was elected. Question on process. Do you wait for a vacancy to arrive to start accepting applications and coming up with one? Or do you have an ongoing process kind of anticipating that a certain number of vacancies will arise? No, each vacancy that arises um, is then put out, uh, governor's office puts out an announcement and asks for applicants. Now, of course, lawyers who are thinking about applying to become a judge do a lot of networking and lobbying and uh, et cetera uh, uh, during the time in between vacancies. But to give you some perspective, um, Governor Evers has been in office uh, going on five years now, and he's had the opportunity to appoint, um, I think it's around 54 or so judges so far. And that's appointing for a short period of time because they then stand for election? Yes. But by and large, I think um, the governor's appointees are moving along at a, it's got to be a plus 85 or 90% rate of standing in, in, in the subsequent election, maybe 85. Uh, there's a few very conservative counties that will, uh, you know, uh, this governor's appointees will always be challenged. The, this governor, I mean, here's what I would say that may interest ACS podcast listeners, which is yeah. um, I got on the committee by a lot of lobbying. Uh, this is a political process, right? And so Um, I think the governor has appointed a a good committee in the sense that it is um, a very diverse committee from a gender, racial, and ethnic standpoint. I am a former uh, president of the Wisconsin Hispanic Lawyers Association. I'm first-generation Mexican-American. My mother is a native of Mexico City, grew up in Mexico City, and emigrated to the United States. She's 91 and still with us. Um, I'm very proud of my Mexican heritage. We, um, prior to Governor Evers' election, through ACS efforts and other efforts, promoting the Gavel Gap report that drew attention to the lack of diversity in state courts, Wisconsin received a failing grade. And so um, this governor recognized that problem and appointed um, myself, another uh, member of the Latino community in, in, in Wisconsin, Rebecca Lopez, a uh, really great lawyer at, in big law, three African-American members um, on the committee, sit on the committee, one member from the Hmong community, which is fairly large in Wisconsin, men and women both. Uh, it, it's really a diverse committee. And the argument that, you know, 
for lack of a less crude way of describing it, that you know, kind of white people can't sit around in a room and learn how to do diversity. You really need members of the communities that you're seeking to access to make informed decisions because this governor wants to appoint highly competent, progressive, and if available, members of neglected, previously neglected communities to the bench. Um, and you need members from those communities to access that part of the legal community. And that has been playing out in Wisconsin. Governor Evers has appointed um, many men and women of color, uh, Latinos, uh, African-American, Asian-American. A lot of uh, his priorities largely um, appear to uh, track with what President Biden identified as priorities for federal appointment. Legal aid, legal action lawyers, public defenders, women and members of minority groups, and, and highly competent. And you can achieve all those things at the same time, in my opinion. And there's still kind of this general perception that you have to trade off competency to increase diversity. And the, the, the opposite uh, couldn't be more true. Yeah. And it, it's with the exact same goal, because we, we talk about President Biden's effort all the time, right? Of tr- the goal is to achieve a federal judiciary that reflects the diversity of the public it serves. And that means demographic diversity. It also means professional and lived diversity. Absolutely. And what you're talking about is a step towards that, is for a selection committee to embody the diversity of the state, which then helps create diverse candidate pools. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's amazing. I, I have um, received, I think, what the young people today call microaggressions from, you know, sitting judges and colleagues that say, gosh, you know, these new judges that you're appointing, they're, they're so young. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I think what you're trying to say is they're so African-American or female. They're not <laughs> Right, right. Because I, I've been doing my homework very carefully and spitting back examples of white male colleagues that were elected, were appointed or elected with far less experience than the people that the governor is appointing just to kick back. But, you know, it's amazing to watch how many people that are really competent come out and apply because they know they'll be given a fair shot. And so we're really elevating the competency of the bench. And to your point, Jeannie, we're creating a a path to, you know, court of appeals offices and Supreme Court candidacies that I think, you know, on the conservative side, they've been doing that for decades and and building a deep path to the bench and higher courts uh, for a long time through the Federalist Society. And we talk about that. The The right has prioritized the court for decades, yep. starting in law school, right? They start by identifying potential judges in law school and work them through their career. Um, and it's one of the reasons that progressives have been behind in terms of prioritizing the courts. And so it's wonderful to see what it looks like to prioritize the courts at a state level. As we all know, the vast majority of cases go through state court. And it's ultimately state courts that have the greatest impact on our lives. It it is. And I think we lose sight of that when sometimes when we talk about the big cases, when we talk about, you know, the abortion rights case that's ultimately going to be in front of the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. When we talk about redistricting, we're forgetting about family court cases, criminal cases, civil cases that affect people's lives in very real ways. And so I've had the pleasure of speaking directly to Governor Evers a few times about judicial selection advisory role that I have. And just I tell him the same thing um, each time, because I think he probably doesn't remember from the last time he talked to me what I said, which is that every appointment you make affects hundreds and hundreds of people's lives every single day. The, the you know, 50 judges, 60 judges. Out of 253, by the time he's done, he's going to have affected, you know, 
more than um, a third of the state judiciary by the time he's finished. And so many decisions that impact people's lives are made by these judges. And we should always keep that in mind, which is why it's so important that the judiciary reflect the communities that they serve. It's also why we always tell people when you're going to elect a governor, think about the courts. Oh, absolutely. You know, figure out how judges get to the bench in your state. Are they elected? Are they appointed? If the governor has a role, you should be asking the governor, what do you look for in a judicial candidate? Absolutely. So I want to, one more question about the Judicial Selection Committee. I appreciate that you said it's a political process. It is. Um, right. You weren't elected to the committee, but it's political. And so there, you can't just wait around to be picked. You do have to be, you have to demonstrate interest and argue why you're qualified to do it. So for listeners who say, I had never thought about this, but this is this could be a way for me to contribute to diversifying my state courts, making sure we have really diverse progressive champions on the bench. What would you recommend they do? Obviously, figure out how judges are selected in your state. The process okay. does differ state to state. Start there. But in terms of how you got on the committee, what would you recommend? Yeah, play, play the long game, first of all. And I'll tell you why in a moment. But let me just say this. I was a public defender for seven years. I then became a criminal defense lawyer in private practice. I was very tired of practicing law. I became very tired over the years of practicing law in front of judges that, in my opinion, were very unfair in deciding constitutional issues related to search and seizure law primarily, um, but also um, other constitutional rights in the criminal setting. And so, um, you know, I saw that there's one game, which is the litigation game in court. That's what we train to do. And we do it as well as we can. There's another game, which is the political process behind who sits in the high chair deciding issues. And, you know, I saw judges that came from a white male majority background saying, you know, it wasn't a big deal for the officer to ask the young man to step out of the car. The officer says he smelled marijuana. I find that to be credible. He was searched subsequent to that. It's, you know, you, you see where I'm going with this. And so I wanted to change the game behind the game. And so, you know, I've been trying, I'll openly say it, to get on the governor's judicial selection advisory committee since three governors ago, you know, and, 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 you know, my politics are progressive. So I know this is a nonpartisan organization and podcast, but my progressive values lead me to tend to support Democratic candidates for governor. So when Milwaukee, well, and, and just the reality of like you're going to get selected to a committee with a governor who matches your ideology. Absolutely, that's just reality. Scott Walker would never have appointed me, then Republican governor, to his Judicial Selection Advisory Committee. So when Milwaukee Mayor Tom Barrett ran for governor twice. I became a supporter actively, um, and in terms of campaign contributions and and uh, fundraising and other efforts, and pitched him at the time as a candidate. Look, if you get elected, this is what I want to do. I want to help you pick judges. Well, we lost twice, and so uh, by play the long game, that's what I mean. I waited through eight years of Governor Walker being the governor to then Governor Evers, and I will say this: and you know, we have an amazing governor in Wisconsin. Uh, I, I was not a big political donor to his during a, a very um, a packed prime Democratic primary field. 
I really emerged subsequent to his election, which was a very tight election. He defeated Governor Walker by a point, less than a point, less than half a point, actually. Um, and then we, I, I made my approaches during the transition team. I knew several members of the team and I pitched ACS bona fides, Latino lawyer bona fides, you know, legal bona fides just to have a, a place on that committee, which is unpaid. It's not elected, but I was asked to serve. Um, and I've enjoyed doing so because at this stage of my career, it's really great to have a say in the judges that preside. Not only, you know, really it's not about presiding over my cases, but as I look at the second half of my career over the cases of other young public defenders and lawyers in all settings. I love that. And I think it's a great way to end to simply say, raise your hand, be engaged, speak up. If you want to impact who sits on the court, obviously consider being a candidate for the court, but this is also an incredible way to do it. But you got to speak up. Yeah, absolutely. And you got to be persistent and keep playing the game. Absolutely. Yeah, stay in the game. I love that. Craig, thank you so much for joining me on Broken Law. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure joining you. And thanks to our listeners for joining the show. Now is a great time to go back and listen to any and all episodes you may have missed over the summer. So take a minute to browse our extensive episode library wherever you are listening to this episode. If you're enjoying the show, you can help us bring it to more listeners by recommending it to a friend and leaving us a five-star review. Make sure to follow us on social media at ACS Law on Twitter. Yes, I still call it Twitter or at American Constitution Society on Instagram and using hashtag Broken Law Podcast. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, whose interests it really serves, and whose it does not.